between last Sunday, which was the Sunday before Christmas, and this Sunday, which is the Sunday after Christmas, which one would you say was more peaceful? For me, it's this Sunday. Because last Sunday, I was still thinking about all that I had to do. I had to shop. I had to travel. I had to get back into town in time for the Christmas Eve service. Ah, the Christmas Eve service. If you'd been here at 5 o'clock, it looked like a swarm of bees here in this sanctuary. The choir was rehearsing their songs. The soloists were rehearsing their songs. The the, the deacons were folding bulletins and breaking bread and filling cups for communion. The sound man was up there and setting up microphones. And and people were down here in front finishing the ornaments that we were going to give out to the children. So I don't know about you, but for me, the preacher, I look back. And I laugh at the irony of the situation. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, not so much. So the very thing that Jesus came to bring us, peace, can be stolen away from us in the very season, in the very season that we focus on him. At the very time we're celebrating the life of the one who came to bring us peace. So it highlights for me how foreign the good things of God are in this world. The good things that God has for us, like peace. They don't come to us naturally, and that's actually the point. The peace of God is supernatural. True peace comes to us only as a gift of God. If you want peace, if you want peace... You must find it in Christ. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we come to Isaiah chapter 9. Once again, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray now once again that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. That's your promise from your word. And so pour out your blessing upon us now, we pray, as we come to your word. We pray that your spirit would reveal your truth to us. Father, we pray that your spirit would transform our lives into the people that you have called us to be, that we would experience the good gifts that you give to us in our lives. It will only be not through what we manufacture, but what you give to us. So we submit ourselves now to you as we come around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You Be seated. Last week, as we looked at these same verses, we reflected on this personal gift that God has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For unto us, for unto us, a son is given. In Christ, God the Father has given us the thing we need the most in life. 
even when we don't know ourselves well enough to know that this is the gift we need most in our lives. And the need is not just for some people or certain people. The need is for every person. And part of that universal need that we all have as human beings is a need for a counselor. And we know that's a universal need that we all have. Because God says here in Isaiah that the one he will send to us as a gift to meet our need will be a counselor. A wonderful counselor. Someone to whom we can pour out our hearts. Someone with whom we can share our burdens. Someone to counsel us and tell us the truth. A second need we share as human beings, if we will live our lives rightly, is the power of God at work in us and through us every day. And so as we reflected last week, God says that the one he will send to us as a gift to meet our need is mighty God, a person of power. A person that has the power to release us from the grip of sin and the devastation that it brings. Power to heal wounded hearts. Power to transform lives. This morning, I want us to reflect on a third need that God knows that each of us has. We all share this need universally as human beings. We need peace. We need peace. And so God says here in Isaiah 9, 6, that the one that he will send to us as a gift to meet our universal human needs is the Prince of Peace. We read it, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Because you and I need peace in our lives. The word prince that's used here in this verse is used in a military sense. You can think of it as synonymous with the word captain, as in the captain of the chariot corps, or the captain of the foot soldiers, or the captain of the armored troops. The captain, at the head, leads the troops on mission, leads them into battle, leads them into enemy territory. And so, with that picture in mind, we think of the one God calls the Prince of Peace. He's on a mission. He must go into enemy territory, and he must lead his troops to establish peace. And that's exactly what happened. Though we like to think of it as a silent night, as a calm night, what happened on the night when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the stable, was in a sense a military maneuver, an advance, an invasion into enemy territory. It seems counterintuitive to us to put peace and battle or military together. But because God puts these two together, it's very telling of the nature of the world in which we live. If Jesus must be a captain who brings a force of peace with him, it is because peace is not native to the place he invades. Just as freedom is not naturally occurring in many countries of the world in which we live. In many places, freedom must be brought in and established 
by force. Governments must be forced to end the oppression of its people and let them live in freedom. And so it is that peace is not naturally occurring in this world. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. And all of us in this room right now have experienced the reality of that. Trouble steals our peace. Sickness steals our peace. Sorrow steals our peace. Difficult work, difficult people steal our peace. Financial struggles steal our peace. Uncertainty about our future steals our peace. The list could go on and on. And perhaps this military term is used here to highlight that peace is not naturally occurring. That Jesus will, as prince, as captain, have to do battle to establish it. To highlight the fact that the one God was sending to us did not establish peace on earth. If he did not establish it, we would not know it or experience and experience it. And that's the reality of what happened. Jesus, the gift of God, had to fight a tremendous battle so that you and I could have peace. These are some words that Jesus spoke the very last week of his life. And he draws the battle out clearly in these words. It's in John chapter 12. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So you see, the battle lines are drawn here. Between Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and Satan, the Prince of this world. And the battleground was the cross. And the cross is always an ugly place. Because a cross is an instrument of torture. It was especially ugly when Jesus, the Son of God, was nailed to one. Darkness covered the land in the middle of the day when Jesus hung there. Because the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, was being placed on the perfect, holy Son of God. It won't take you long to think of the ugliness of some sin in your life. Jesus took it all on, all the ugliness of it, not only for you and me, but for the world. No wonder the cross is a place of such darkness and ugliness and death. It couldn't be otherwise. When have you ever seen a beautiful battleground? Never. At least not until all the carnage is removed. And perhaps later flowers are planted there or a marble marker erected to commemorate the battle. The cross was a battlefield as Jesus battled to stay there. As Jesus battled not to call on a legion of angels that would have come to his rescue had he called out to them. 
Were Jesus to have done that, the price of sin would not have been paid and we would never know peace. So what did Jesus do? He remained on the cross and he battled on. And he battled on. And when he knew the battle had ended, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he died. And that was the end of the battle that the Prince of Peace initiated in the cover of darkness on that silent night on which he was born. In that moment on the cross, it appeared as if Jesus had lost the battle. It looked as if Jesus should concede the victory to the prince of this world so that the prince of this world could begin his victory celebration and establish himself not just as prince of the world, but king of the world. Ah, but that victory was short-lived. Jesus' death was the victory. Jesus was the victory, not the defeat. The death on the cross that Jesus would not avoid. The death on the cross from which Jesus refused to call out for rescue. The death that he boldly and willingly endured was not a defeat. His death was the required strategy to win the to battle, to defeat the power of death and the oppression of sin. On the third day, he was raised to life by the power of God as proof to us that the victory was won. If death has no power over him, if death could not keep him sealed in that tomb, then death has no power over us. Is that good news? If the sin that covered Jesus could not keep him from the Father, could not keep him from life with the Father, then that sin cannot keep us from life with the Father because of Christ. The victory goes to Christ. Ding, ding, ding. He came to do battle with death, the greatest enemy of peace. He came to invade this land and to bring peace to it, and he accomplished that. This peace, listen, this peace has nothing to do whatsoever with what you or I think about it or feel about it. <laughs> doesn't matter what you think about it, what you feel about it. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. Peace is an accomplished fact, period. Colossians 1.19 For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Peace is an accomplished fact, period. One more, Ephesians 2.12. Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus, for He Himself is our peace. See, this is the objective truth. The objective truth as God declares it to be. And nothing you or I can do can make it not so. Who do you know that has the power to undo what God has done? 
the ability to have peace with God, the ability to have peace with God will always be a possibility through faith in Christ. But it's up to each one of us, each one of us, each one of you here this morning, whether you want peace or not. Real peace. Deep peace. Lasting peace. If we want that peace, it has to be on God's terms. And God says, in order for us to have that peace, we have to place our faith in Christ and the work he accomplished on the cross. When we do that, God promised to us, promises to us a peace will invade our hearts. A peace that goes beyond our ability to understand. And that brings us to the subjective nature of peace. We all have feelings. We all have emotions as we live out our lives here in this world that has been so radically affected and disfigured by sin. There's no end to what you and I could worry about in our lives. And until the Prince of Peace returns, which he promises to do, our peace in this world must be achieved in a world that's hostile to it, a world in which peace is foreign, a world that attempts to reject the peace of God. I have a dear friend who had a liver transplant a few years ago. And her concern, as is the concern of every transplant patient, is rejection. What might her body do to reject this organ that her body knows is foreign to it? The peace of Christ is foreign to this world. What will the world do to try to reject it? On one occasion... After the twelve disciples had been following Jesus for a while, he called the twelve disciples around them. He had a mission for them to accomplish. He wanted them to go out into the world on their own. And so he said to them in Matthew chapter 10, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Wow. Now see, up until this point, the disciples have just been following Jesus, listening to him teach, learning important truths about God and how they should live their lives. They've been watching him perform these mind-boggling miracles. Can you imagine? Healing the lame, giving sick sight to the blind, commanding a storm to, to be still, raising a dead girl back to life. Being in the company of Jesus was like nothing they had ever experienced before. Well, on this day, Jesus gathers the twelve around him. And in essence, he tells them, I'm sending you out to do the same things that you've seen me doing. I'm giving you power. I'm giving you authority to preach that the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm giving you power and authority to heal the sick and raise the dead and drive out demons. But before Jesus the Prince of Peace sends them out, he gives them this warning. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, 
Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. See, this is what the Prince of Peace says. That the world is going to do to those he sends out to preach the message of peace. I can only imagine how difficult it was for the disciples to hear these words of Jesus. Because Jesus had always only ever told them the truth. Jesus had never lied to them. Nothing that Jesus said will happen had not happened. And so these words of Jesus, like all the others, are going to be fulfilled. Arrested. Beaten. Persecuted. Hated. Where is the peace here? Where's the calm for the soul? The Prince of Peace is describing a life that they had not known before. A life different than they had ever lived before. A life apparently less peaceful because of the Prince of Peace than more peaceful. Maybe now they would just as soon not have to go out on their first day on this new job that Jesus has given to them. Yesterday they could face tomorrow because perhaps their biggest worry was whether they would get a hole in their fishing nets. But suddenly today they must be afraid of tomorrow. They must wonder if they have the ability to stand up and to face this new reality that Jesus is describing. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows their fears, just as he knows ours. He knew that telling them the truth about the world and the people they might face, he knew telling the truth about tomorrow might trouble their hearts and steal away their peace. But what kind of peace did they really have apart from Jesus? How easily could that peace disappear in an unexpected instant. Same is true for us. What kind of peace do you really have in your life? And whatever that peace is, if it's not based on Christ, how quickly could it disappear in an unexpected moment? How certain is it? And what do you have to do to maintain it? What kind of Acrobatics do you have to perform to manipulate and to juggle all these various parts of your life to maintain some semblance of peace? Well, Jesus continues. Before he sends out the disciples, he says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Now, this sounds more like the Prince of Peace, doesn't it? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And Jesus offers them hope and peace. Just as he offers hope and peace to us by offering them a new perspective on their new world, their new life, their new reality in Christ. This life is not all there is. I want to repeat that so everybody hears it. This life is not all there is. The disciples' bodies that would one day be chained and beaten and pierced through with a sword and dragged through the streets and crucified upside down, those bodies were only for this life, but the soul is eternal. You see, here's the lie that Satan uses to keep us bound up in fear, and that lie is that this life is all there is. 
And so we do whatever we need to do, and we say whatever we have to say to preserve this life, to extend this life, to get the most pleasure out of this life, to make this life as comfortable as possible, because this is it. And so you and I become enslaved to not losing this life or to not getting the most pleasure out of it. And the minute that the disciples or you and I begin to believe that lie, that this life is all there is, that's the moment when peace moves out of our heart. Peace just moves out and fear moves in because we fear the end of this life, better known as death. We fear those people and those circumstances that we believe might injure or end this life. But Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, the one who established everlasting peace between God and us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, he offers us freedom from fear. By offering us this eternal perspective, this life is not all there is. Y'all know that I love the Heidelberg Confession, Heidelberg Catechism. I love it. I love question one. I quote it often. Here it goes again. Once you memorize it, I won't do this anymore. <laughs> question one is, what is your only comfort? What is your only peace in life and death? And the answer is this. Here's my peace. That I am not my own, I am not my own, but belong both body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not my own, but I belong both body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is true peace. When you can say that, that's what Jesus wants for us. He wants peace. The last night of his life, the last supper that he shared with his disciples around that table. Jesus looks around the table and he makes eye contact with Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James and Thaddeus and Simon. And he says to them as he looks around the table, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is like the last will and testament of the Lord. It's, it's reading the last will and testament. What does he bequeath? What does he leave to the disciples and to us? He leaves peace. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give you. Their world in just a few hours will be rocked to its very foundation. But in the midst of it, Jesus' peace. And he concludes everything he says that night, Jesus does, around the table, by saying, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. That's what Jesus wants for us. And so he dies on the cross. And then he comes back to life. And one of the first words he speaks when he comes back to life, this is Sunday night, the Sunday night of Resurrection Day. He comes to the, the disciples he says, on the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, what? Guess. What? Peace. 
Peace be with you. That's what he said. After he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw it. And again, Jesus said, what? What? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. A week later, the disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked once again. And Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, what? Peace be with you. You see? Peace is what Jesus wants for his people. Both times the Lord appeared, the disciples were not at peace. John is very clear to tell us that they were afraid. He's very clear to tell us that they were hiding behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jews, that they would kill them as well. But Jesus comes and stands in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their worry, and he says, peace. And that's what the Lord does for us as well. Right in the midst of our Worry right in the midst of our fear. Jesus is the only one who can come and speak peace to us. Peter was there in the upper room that night. He was the leader of the disciples, and so it might have been Peter who locked the door. Or it might have been Peter who said, Hey, John, make sure the door is locked. But listen to what he writes in his letter. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance. See, this is a guy who knew the lack of peace. He's a guy who hid behind closed, locked doors, but this same man was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And he never locked a door again. And he did not live in fear anymore. He boldly proclaimed the gospel of Christ and he died crucified upside down for the sake of the gospel. So you can believe what you want, you can say what you want, but there's something very real about the peace of Christ. And it's far easier experienced than it is explained. We can't even explain it when Jesus gives it to us. How many times have I been with a believer who's suffering some tragedy and they've testified, I feel such peace. I know I shouldn't, but I have this peace in my heart. I'm sure the apostles could not explain the peace they had when they actually were able to die for their faith in Christ. This peace is real. Peter knows it. And now he prays the same thing for other believers. Grace and peace. That what he had experienced would be theirs in abundance. And then he gives them the key to that peace. And we'll conclude with this. He writes, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Here's the key. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peace be yours in abundance. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If you will know peace this morning, every person in here, if you will know true peace this morning, it's only through knowing Christ. If you reject Christ, you reject peace. But if you seek Christ, even those of us here this morning who are believers, as the Holy Spirit gives you understanding of the person of Christ, as you see Him revealed in His Word and the riches that are hidden in Him, you will have peace. The more you seek Christ, the more peace 
peace, peace, peace will come to your life. And that's what our Heavenly wants, our Heavenly Father wants for us. For unto us a son is born, and his name will be called Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the depth and the extent of your knowledge of us. As Tony read this morning here at the baptism, Lord, you knit us together in our mother's womb. No one knows us better than you do, Lord. No one. We don't even know ourselves as well as you know us. And you know our greatest needs and you make provision for the things that we need most. You know that we need peace in our lives. And so you have provided for that need through Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace. Lord, when we embrace Christ in faith, you give us your peace. And we thank you for that. Lord, the extent to which we follow after and seek after Christ in this new life you've given us also determines the amount of peace we have. Lord, as we spend our time focusing on our troubles, focusing on our worries, focusing on uncertain future, all those things, to the extent we focus on them and not the person of Christ, we won't have peace, at least not the peace that you desire for us. But as we focus on him, Lord, we know that peace will flood our souls because you, Lord, are God in control. We don't know our future, but you do, and our lives are in your hands, and so we can be at peace and say, all is well with my soul. So we thank you and praise you for that. And for those here this morning, Lord, who don't know true peace yet, thank you, Spirit, that you are here working through your word among your people. Pray that you would open eyes to see the great need. Open eyes to see how that need is met in you. So I pray that those people would turn in faith and embrace you as their Lord and Savior. Thank you again for time together around your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.